This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 8, Continuation. It was several days after the arrival of Madame Cheron's servant before Emily was sufficiently recovered to undertake the journey to La Vallée. On the evening preceding her departure, she went to the cottage to take leave of La Voisin and his family, and to make them a return for their kindness. The old man she found sitting on a bench at his door, between his daughter and his son-in-law who was just returned from his daily labour, and who was playing upon a pipe that in tone resembled an oboe. A flask of wine stood beside the old man, and before him a small table with fruit and bread, round which stood several of his grandsons, fine rosy children who were taking their supper as their mother distributed it. On the edge of the little green that spread before the cottage were cattle and a few sheep reposing under the trees. The landscape was touched with the mellow light of the evening sun, whose long slanting beams played through a vista of the woods and lighted up the distant turrets of the chateau. She paused a moment before she emerged from the shade to gaze upon the happy group before her, on the complacency and ease of healthy age depictured on the countenance of la voisin the maternal tenderness of agnes as she looked upon her children and the innocency of infantine pleasures reflected in their smiles emily looked again at the venerable old man and at the cottage the memory of her father rose with full force upon her mind and she hastily stepped forward afraid to trust herself with a longer pause she took an affectionate and affecting leave of la voisin and his family he seemed to love her as his daughter and shed tears emily shed many she avoided going into the cottage since she knew it would revive emotions such as she could not now endure one painful scene yet awaited her for she determined to visit again her father's grave and that she might not be interrupted or observed in the indulgence of her melancholy tenderness she deferred her visit till every inhabitant of the convent, except the nun who promised to bring her the key of the church, should be retired to rest. Emily remained in her chamber till she heard the convent bell strike twelve, when the nun came as she had appointed with the key of a private door that opened into the church, and they descended together the narrow winding staircase that led thither. The nun offered to accompany Emily to the grave, adding, it is melancholy to go alone at this hour. But the former, thanking her for her consideration, could not consent to have any witness of his sorrow, and the sister, having unlocked the door, gave her the lamp. "'You will remember, sister,' said she, "'that in the east aisle which you must pass is a newly opened grave. Hold the light to the ground, that you may not stumble over the loose earth.' Emily, thanking her again, took the lamp, and stepping into the church, Sister Mariette departed. But Emily paused a moment at the door. A sudden fear came over her, and she returned to the foot of the staircase, 
where, as she heard the steps of the nun ascending, and while she held up the lamp, saw her black veil waving over the spiral balusters, she was tempted to call her back. While she hesitated, the veil disappeared, and in the next moment, ashamed of her fears, she returned to the church. The cold air of the aisles chilled her, and their deep silence and extent, feebly shone upon by the moonlight that streamed through a distant Gothic window, would at any other time have awed her into superstition. Now grief occupied all her attention. She scarcely heard the whispering echoes of her own steps, or thought of the open grave, till she found herself almost on its brink. A friar of the convent had been buried there on the preceding evening, and as she had sat alone in her chamber at twilight, she heard at distance the monks chanting the requiem for his soul. This brought freshly to her memory the circumstances of her father's death, and as the voices, mingling with the low, querulous peal of the organ, swelled faintly, gloomy and affecting visions had arisen upon her mind. Now she remembered them, and turning aside to avoid the broken ground, these recollections made her pass on with quicker steps to the grave of Saint-Aubert, when in the moonlight that fell athwart a remote part of the aisle, she thought she saw a shadow gliding between the pillars. She stopped to listen, and not hearing any footstep, believed that her fancy had deceived her, and no longer apprehensive of being observed, proceeded. Saint-Aubert was buried beneath a plain marble, bearing little more than his name and the date of his birth and death near the foot of the stately monument of the Ville-Roi. Emily remained at his grave till a chime that called the monks to early prayers warned her to retire. Then she wept over it a last farewell, and forced herself from the spot. After this hour of melancholy indulgence, she was refreshed by a deeper sleep than she had experienced for a long time and on awakening her mind was more tranquil and resigned than it had been since Saint-Aubert's death. But when the moment of her departure from the convent arrived, all her grief returned. The memory of the dead, and the kindness of the living, attached her to the place, and for the sacred spot where her father's remains were interred, she seemed to feel all those tender affections which we conceive for home. The abbess repeated many kind assurances of regard at their parting, and pressed her to return if ever she should find her condition elsewhere unpleasant. Many of the nuns also expressed unaffected regret at her departure, and Emily left the convent with many tears, and followed by sincere wishes for her happiness. She had travelled several leagues before the scenes of the country through which she passed had power to rouse her for a moment from the deep melancholy into which she was sunk, and when they did, it was only to remind her that on her last view of them Saint-Aubert was at her side, and to call up to her remembrance the remarks he had delivered on similar scenery. Thus, without any particular occurrence, passed the day in languor and dejection. She slept that night in a town on the skirts of Languedoc, and on the following morning entered Gascony. Towards the close of this day, Emily came within view of the plains in the neighbourhood of La Vallée, and the well-known objects of former times began to press upon her notice, and with them recollections that awakened all her tenderness and grief. 
often while she looked through her tears upon the wild grandeur of the Pyrenees, now varied with the rich lights and shadows of evening, she remembered that when she last saw them her father partook with her of the pleasure they inspired. Suddenly some scene which he had particularly pointed out to her would present itself, and the sick languor of despair would steal upon her heart. There, she would exclaim, there are the very cliffs, there the wood of pines which he looked at with such delight, as we passed this road together for the last time. There, too, under the crag of that mountain, is the cottage, peeping from among the cedars, which he bade me remember, and copy with my pencil. Oh, my father, shall I never see you more? As she drew near the chateau, these melancholy memorials of past times multiplied. At length the chateau itself appeared, amid the glowing beauty of Saint-Aubert's favourite landscape. This was an object which called for fortitude, not for tears. Emily dried hers, and prepared to meet with calmness the trying moment of her return to that home where there was no longer a parent to welcome her. Yes, said she, let me not forget the lessons he has taught me. How often he has pointed out the necessity of resisting even virtuous sorrow. How often we have admired together the greatness of a mind that can at once suffer and reason. Oh, my father, if you are permitted to look down upon your child, it will please you to see that she remembers and endeavours to practice the precepts you have given her. A turn on the road now allotted a nearer view of the chateau, the chimneys tipped with light rising from behind Saint-Aubert's favourite oaks, whose foliage partly concealed the lower part of the building. Emily could not suppress a heavy sigh. This too was his favourite hour, said she, as she gazed upon the long evening shadows stretched athwart the landscape. How deep the repose, how lovely the scene! lovely and tranquil as in former days. Again she resisted the pressure of sorrow, till her ear caught the gay melody of the dance, which she had so often listened to as she walked with Saint-Aubert on the margin of the Garonne, where all her fortitude forsook her, and she continued to weep, till the carriage stopped at the little gate that opened upon what was now her own territory. She raised her eyes on the sudden stopping of the carriage, and saw her father's old housekeeper coming to open the gate. Manchon also came running, and barking before her, and when his young mistress alighted, fawned and played round her, gasping with joy. "'Dear Mamselle,' said Theresa, and paused and looked as if she would have offered something of condolement to Emily, whose tears now prevented reply. The dog still fawned and ran round her, and then flew towards the carriage with a short, quick bark. "'Ah, mademoiselle, my poor master,' said Theresa, whose feelings were more awakened than her delicacy. "'Monchon's gone to look for him.' Emily sobbed aloud, and on looking towards the carriage, which still stood with the door open, saw the animal spring into it, and instantly leap out and then with his nose on the ground run round the horses. "'Don't cry so, mademoiselle,' said Theresa. "'It breaks my heart to see you.' The dog now came running to Emily, then returned to the carriage, and then back again to her, whining and discontented. "'Poor rogue,' said Theresa. 
thou hast lost thy master thou mayst well cry but come my dear young lady be comforted what shall i get to refresh you emily gave her hand to the old servant and tried to restrain her grief while she made some kind inquiries concerning her health but she still lingered in the walk which led to the chateau for within was no person to meet her with the kiss of affection her own heart no longer palpitated with impatient joy to meet again the well-known smile and she dreaded to see objects which would recall the full remembrance of her former happiness she moved slowly towards the door paused went on and paused again how silent how forsaken how forlorn did the chateau appear trembling to enter it yet blaming herself for delaying what she could not avoid she at length passed into the hall crossed it with a hurried step as if afraid to look round and opened the door of that room which she was wont to call her own the gloom of evening gave solemnity to its silent and deserted air the chairs the tables every article of furniture so familiar to her in happier times spoke eloquently to her heart she seated herself without immediately observing it in a window which opened upon the garden and where st aubert had often sat with her watching the sun retire from the rich and extensive prospect that appeared beyond the groves having indulged her tears for some time she became more composed and when theresa after seeing the baggage deposited in her lady's room again appeared she had so far recovered her spirits as to be able to converse with her i have made up the green bed for you mademoiselle said theresa as she set the coffee upon the table i thought you would like it better than your own now but i little thought this day month that you would come back alone ah well a day the news almost broke my heart when it did come who would have believed that my poor master when he went from home would never return again emily hid her face with her handkerchief and waved her hand do taste the coffee said theresa my dear young lady be comforted we must all die my dear master is a saint above emily took the handkerchief from her face and raised her eyes full of tears towards heaven soon after she dried them and in a calm but tremulous voice began to inquire concerning some of her late father's pensioners alas a day said theresa as she poured out the coffee and handed it to her mistress all that could come have been here every day to inquire after you and my master she then proceeded to tell that some were dead whom they had left well and others who were ill had recovered and see mademoiselle added theresa there is old mary coming up the garden now she has looked every day these three years as if she would die yet she is alive still she has seen the chaise at the door and knows you are come home the sight of this poor old woman would have been too much for emily and she begged theresa would go and tell her that she was too ill to see any person that night to-morrow i shall be better perhaps but give her this token of my remembrance emily sat for some time given up to sorrow not an object on which her eye glanced but awakened some remembrance that led immediately to the subject of her grief her favourite plants which st aubert had taught her to nurse 
the little drawings that adorned the room which his taste had instructed her to execute, the books that he had selected for her use, and which they had read together, her musical instruments, whose sounds he loved so well, and which he sometimes awakened himself. Every object gave new force to sorrow. At length she roused herself from this melancholy indulgence, and summoning all her resolution, stepped forward to go into those forlorn rooms, which, though she dreaded to enter, she knew would yet more powerfully affect her if she delayed to visit them. Having passed through the greenhouse, her courage for a moment forsook her when she opened the door of the library, and perhaps the shade which evening and the foliage of the trees near the windows threw across the room heightened the solemnity of her feelings on entering that apartment where everything spoke of her father. There was an armchair in which he used to sit. She shrunk when she observed it, for she had so often seen him seated there and the idea of him rose so distinctly to her mind that she almost fancied she saw him before her. But she checked the illusions of a distempered imagination, though she could not subdue a certain degree of awe which now mingled with her emotions. She walked slowly to the chair and seated herself in it. There was a reading-desk before it on which lay a book open as it had been left by her father. It was some moments before she recovered courage enough to examine it, and when she looked at the open page, she immediately recollected that Saint-Aubert, on the evening before his departure from the chateau, had read to her some passages from this his favourite author. The circumstance now affected her extremely. She looked at the page, wept, and looked again. To her the book appeared sacred and invaluable, and she would not have moved it or closed the page which he had left open for the treasures of the Indies. Still she sat before the desk and could not resolve to quit it, though the increasing gloom and the profound silence of the apartment revived a degree of painful awe. Her thoughts dwelt on the probable state of departed spirits, and she remembered the affecting conversation which had passed between Saint-Aubert and La Voisin, on the night preceding his death. As she mused, she saw the door slowly open, and a rustling sound in a remote part of the room startled her. Through the dusk she thought she perceived something move. The subject she had been considering, and the present tone of her spirits, which made her imagination respond to every impression of the senses, gave her a sudden terror of something supernatural. She sat for a moment motionless, and then, her dissipated reason returning, "'What should I fear?' said she. "'If the spirits of those we love ever return to us, it is in kindness.' The silence which again reigned made her ashamed of her late fears, and she believed that her imagination had deluded her, or that she had heard one of those unaccountable noises which sometimes occur in old houses. The same sound, however, returned, and distinguishing something moving towards her, and in the next instant press beside her into the chair, she shrieked. But her fleeting senses were instantly recalled, on perceiving that it was Manchon who sat by her, and who now licked her hands affectionately. 
perceiving her spirits unequal to the task she had assigned herself of visiting the deserted rooms of the chateau this night when she left the library she walked into the garden and down to the terrace that overhung the river the sun was now set but under the dark branches of the almond trees was seen the saffron glow of the west spreading beyond the twilight of middle air the bat flitted silently by and now and then the morning note of the nightingale was heard the circumstances of the hour brought to her recollection some lines which she had once heard saint aubert recite on this very spot and she had now a melancholy pleasure in repeating them sonnet now the bat circles on the breeze of eve that creeps in shuddering fits along the wave and trembles mid the woods and through the cave whose lonely sighs the wanderer deceive for oft when melancholy charms his mind he thinks the spirit of the rock he hears nor listens but with sweetly thrilling fears to the low mystic murmurs of the wind now the bat circles and the twilight dew falls silent round and o'er the mountain cliff the gleaming wave and far-discovered skiff spreads the grey veil of soft harmonious hue so falls o'er grief the dew of pity's tear dimming her lonely visions of despair emily wandering on came to st aubert's favourite plane-tree where so often at this hour they had sat beneath the shade together and with her dear mother so often had conversed on the subject of a future state how often, too, had her father expressed the comfort he derived from believing that they should meet in another world? Emily, overcome by these recollections, left the plane tree, and as she leaned pensively on the wall of the terrace, she observed a group of peasants dancing gaily on the banks of the Garonne, which spread in broad expanse below and reflected the evening light what a contrast they formed to the desolate unhappy emily they were gay and debonair as they were wont to be when she too was gay when st aubert used to listen to their merry music with a countenance beaming pleasure and benevolence emily having looked for a moment on this sprightly band turned away unable to bear the remembrances it excited but where alas could she turn and not meet new objects to give acuteness to grief as she walked slowly towards the house she was met by teresa dear mademoiselle said she i have been seeking you up and down this half hour and was afraid some accident had happened to you how can you like to wander about so in this night air do come into the house think what my poor master would have said if he could see you i'm sure when my dear lady died no gentleman could take it more to heart than he did yet you know he seldom shed a tear pray teresa cease said emily wishing to interrupt this ill-judged but well-meaning harangue teresa's loquacity however was not to be silenced so easily and when you used to grieve so she added he often told you how wrong it was for that my mistress was happy and if she was happy i'm sure he is so too for the prayers of the poor they say reach heaven during this speech emily had walked silently into the chateau 
and Teresa lighted her across the hall into the common sitting-parlour, where she had laid the cloth with one solitary knife and fork for supper. Emily was in the room before she perceived that it was not her own apartment, but she checked the emotion which inclined her to leave it, and seated herself quietly by the little supper-table. Her father's hat hung on the opposite wall. While she gazed at it, a faintness came over her. Teresa looked at her, and then at the object on which her eyes were settled, and went to remove it. But Emily waved her hand. No, said she, let it remain. I'm going to my chamber. Nay, mademoiselle, supper is ready. I cannot take it, replied Emily. I will go to my room and try to sleep. Tomorrow I shall be better. This is poor doings, said Teresa. Dear lady, do take some food. I have dressed a pheasant, and a fine one it is. Old Monsieur Barreau sent it this morning, for I saw him yesterday and told him you were coming, and I know nobody that seemed more concerned when he heard the sad news than he. Did he? said Emily in a tender voice, while she felt her poor heart warmed for a moment by a ray of sympathy. At length her spirits were entirely overcome and she retired to her room. End of Volume 1, Chapter 8